Welcome to another edition of BartCast, a podcast series curated by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. Learn more at bcm-net.org. I'm beaming to you from the small town of Oakview, California, where, as you may know, we just endured um, a month-long fire, which actually is still burning as we speak, Um, but its hours are numbered now because we've just gotten our first rain in 11 months uh, is falling outside, for which we are very grateful. This was the largest wildfire in the history of California, and it surrounded us here. We're about an hour and a half north of Los Angeles. So it's been uh, quite a uh, stressful uh, Advent season, and we're very uh, glad to have worked through Christmastide and on into the new year. Uh, This is a great way for Bill and I to start off the new year, uh, looking at uh, each of the synoptic gospels as they are used. in preparation for uh, their use in the Revised Common Lectionary in years A, B, and C, respectively. We are in the year of Mark, uh, which is a lot of fun for me because it is a gospel that I've done uh, some work in. Um, So let's let's go ahead and get started. And I want, uh, I'm going to switch screens here so that you can see the the PowerPoint. I want to begin by uh, emphasizing what I believe to be two incontrovertible truths about reading Scripture. Uh, The first is that we read Scripture, in this case the Gospel, from a social context, necessarily. Uh, we all dwell in a social context. We're shaped by that social context. That context uh, influences uh, how we see and what we see, the conditions under which we live, um, help us see or prevent us from seeing certain aspects of, of any text, but in this case, Scripture. Uh, so, for example, one of the um, aspects of our context that I'll be emphasizing is the fact that we live in a world in which vast wealth disparity still prevails, with rich and poor often living very cruelly side by side, not only abroad, this is a picture from Venezuela, but also Uh, here in North America. And obviously, all sorts of conflicts uh, arise out of these sort of social and economic disparities. And as you know, uh, this wealth disparity is intensifying. It certainly is intensifying here in the United States. Uh, You can see how Um, wealth is vastly unevenly distributed here in the United States. And this is a picture of um, wealth gain or loss uh, over the last uh, 25 years. Uh, And you can see that the, um, that half, almost half of the United States is actually lost um, in net worth while the, top 5% has gained radically. So this is the kind of graph that underlines wealth disparity in our world. And it's it's not just in the U.S., but it's also in Canada, uh, where, again, the, the top um, quintile, the top 20%, um, own almost half of Canada's wealth. It's not nearly as dramatic as the United States, but still something that Canadians need to um, be aware of. <clears throat> so that's the, that's the first um, unassailable truth, is that we 
read it, we read these texts from a particular social context as well as personal context. The second truth, um, equally unassailable, is that the Bible itself also exists in a social context. Uh, it was produced out of a social context. And so it is not only important to be mindful of how and from what context we read, but also the discipline of reading these texts in light of their own social context. Now, at the most basic level of generalization, our scriptures were forged amidst a context that was dominated by ancient empires. From the time that Abraham was called out of Ur in Mesopotamia, the Bible has been the record of people struggling to survive and remain faithful in successive cauldrons of authoritarian empire. This has been recently summarized by Richard Horsley in a, in a good little book called In the Shadow of Empire, a book that I commend. Whether we consider the story of Moses leading an enslaved people out of Egypt or the text of the prophets speaking truth to the Babylonian and Persian empires or Jesus and the early church contesting the omnipotent claims of Rome, the story in our scriptures has, in this sense, been essentially the same. That is, it's about how we follow the way of justice and mercy, the way of Torah in the Hebrew Bible and the way of Jesus in the Second Testament, in a world, in an ancient world that was defined by empire and its violent discontents. And <clears throat> to bridge these two truths, the, the truth of the social context in the ancient world and the truth of our own social context, it's also important to remember that since the rise of the first dominating city-states in Mesopotamia, civilization itself has been equated with empire. That is, how we understand the world. Um, history and civilization always is equated with empire. From our Western vantage point, everything prior to the rise of the first empires is concerted, considered prehistoric and, quite frankly, rather uninteresting to most folk. Everything since is understood to be the story of conquest right up to the present. But the, from the perspective of our scriptures, if you've seen one empire, you've seen them all, whether that's Egypt or Babylon or Rome. They were all similar beasts. The same must therefore also be said about the post-biblical empires, whether we're talking about imperial Christendom or the British Empire or the current American one. So there is this strand of unfortunate continuity between antiquity and the present that both worlds, though vastly different, share this notion of um, being defined by certain imperial realities. And the scripture tradition that, remarkably enough, we continue to read 2,000, 3,000 years after these texts were produced, the scriptural perspective uh, around these empires is can really be summarized fairly simply. That is, the God of the Bible stands against empire and with the victims of empire, and moreover refuses to be domesticated by empire. So I think it's important to frame this as we approach these texts. This is 2018, and it happens to be the 30th year since the publication of my first attempt to read the whole of Mark's gospel 
with an eye to imperial realities, both in our own social context in the first world and the social context of the world from which Mark wrote. Uh, the cover on the right is from the 20th anniversary edition of this book. So if you have this book, that's probably the edition you have. And I hope that the five presentations which I'm privileged to offer this week, thanks to the generosity of uh, Bill Richards, I hope these presentations will offer a, <clears throat> a complementary approach to Mark uh, alongside the <clears throat> Bachelardian foil that Dr. Richards is using. Uh, Bill and I both believe that a narrative approach to Mark is, uh, and indeed to all of our Gospels, is key. And uh, the approach I take is a narrative approach, uh, but it's a narrative approach that also attempts to understand literary expressions uh, <clears throat> as evidence of social context. So for this task, I'm going to offer five core samples from the second gospel um, and look at them in some detail using a me methodology that I broadly call literary sociology, which you'll have uh, encountered some of the outlines of that method in your assigned reading, I believe. So the first core sample today uh, offers an example of reading the Bible economically in order to read our economy biblically. Uh, in this core sample, I'm focusing on the second half of Mark's introductory prologue. So you've <clears throat> been assigned the context setting section of Binding the Strong Man, but the piece I want to look at here um, will examine some further research since that book was published. And most importantly, this morning, we're going to be looking in some detail at a text that some of you will get to preach on in two weeks, since Mark 1, 14 to 20 is the gospel reading in the Revised Common Lectionary for the third Sunday in Epiphany, January 21st. So, particularly this morning, I invite you to take good notes. I hope that you have the opportunity to proclaim this amazing story, and I encourage you to have the text in front of you as we dive in. Now, Jesus scholar John Dominic Crusson, and, and Crusson is um, somebody I'm getting to know personally because we're working together right now on a committee that is drafting some talking points for Pope Francis, who we expect sometime in the coming year or two is going to come out with an encyclical on nonviolence. And there's a uh, group of about 30 scholars around the world, mostly Catholic, and uh, me, the token Mennonite, uh, who are uh, trying to draft some talking points uh, for the Pope around this. And so I've been working with Crossan on this project. Uh, <clears throat> and Crossan, in his um, fairly recent book, God and Empire, sets the context for us succinctly. He says, as you read here, it was precisely and specifically by the shores of the Sea of Galilee that the radicality of Israel's God confronted the normalcy of Rome's civilization under Herod Antipas in the 20s of the first century of the Common Era. And in that moment of history, we'll see that the Palestinian Jew, Jesus, specifically chose to stand with workers who were being hammered by what we might call structural adjustments that were being imposed on uh, that part of Galilee around the lake by Roman imperial interests. So in this historical moment, the radicality of Israel's God confronts the normalcy of Rome's empire. And indeed, when we take up Mark in our own preaching, the same thing can happen. So let's start with the question of, wh of where did Jesus come from? Mark introduces him in verse 9 as hailing from Nazareth 
in Galilee. This small village was obscure. It's otherwise unattested in ancient literature. And yet Mark emphasizes this place of origins throughout his story. It's mentioned in, again in verse 24, again in Mark 10.47, again in Mark 14.67, and at the very end of the story in Mark 16.6. So what was significant about Nazareth was the fact that it lay a mere three miles southwest of the city of Sepphoris, as you can see here on your map. Sepphoris, also known as Zippori or Diocesaria, was captured and later fortified by Herod the Great and turned into the capital of Lower Galilee. It was rebuilt with a theater and a royal palace as a center of Hellenistic culture. After Herod the Great's death in the year 4 before the Common Era, A Judean insurrection broke out, however, and this was one of the most important skirmishes of this insurrection. The sacking of the royal armory at Sepphoris, led by one Judas, son of Ezekias. We read about this in the Jewish historian Josephus. In retaliation to this insurrection, Verus, the Roman legate of Syria, raised the city to the ground and sold the Galilean rebels into slavery. Herod's son Antipas thereafter moved to impose a Roman style order on the region, beginning with the building of the rebuilding of Sepphoris. Among his first acts, writes Richard Horsley, was the establishment of a modern administrative center in Sepphoris from which security forces, market inspectors, and tax collectors could be easily dispatched around the region. The former regional capital of Sepphoris lay in ruins as a result of the recent uprising, and so Antipas ordered that it be reconstructed as a modern Roman city with a palace, a treasury, archives, and a forum. When this was completed, Antipas brought in a new population of loyal functionaries and workers to replace the former inhabitants who had been killed by Varus's legions or sold off into slavery. And this is key. He named the new city Autocratoris, literally belonging to the emperor. So what's significant about all of this? Well, for one thing, we have to surmise that the trauma of Sepphoris's destruction and reconstruction as an imperial center right at Jesus' doorstep would have had a profound impact on his consciousness infusing in him a keen sense of the travails of empire. Moreover, if we assume that during these very years, Jesus was laboring as a young carpenter, that's the meaning of the Greek word tekton, which also means construction workers in Nazareth, then it's highly likely that Jesus may have gotten work rebuilding Sepphoris just one hour's walk away, as is the case for so many colonized people around the world still today, Jesus would have found work building the very infrastructure of his oppressor. In this picture, you can see the ruins of Sepphoris in the foreground and in the hills beyond Nazareth. So literally all of this is happening within the eyesight of the young Jesus. Now, to give you a sense of how Rome's iron hand gripped the popular imagination and the hearts and minds of those living in occupied countries 
such as Palestine. Uh, here's a picture of a third century of the Common Era dedication plaque found on a different periphery of the Roman Empire. This comes from northern England, so uh, a remote outpost on the opposite side of the Roman Empire. The inscription here <clears throat> is flanked by two relief carvings. At left is the god Mars, the god of war, brandishing a spear, while at right the mythological hero Hercules holds a club. At bottom is a running boar, symbol of the 20th legion. These were the Roman legions that were particularly skilled at fighting uh, colonial wars. Uh, and this is a dedication plaque to the 20th. So this is the propaganda of empire. Don't mess with us because we are all powerful and we will beat you down. So in that sense, this is, uh, <clears throat> this is the psyche of domination that is literally being constructed right in the um, visual and um, uh, cultural sphere of Jesus growing up in Nazareth. So in this context of domination, <clears throat> Mark's prologue makes it clear that Jesus is going to be about something very different. Mark makes it clear that Jesus chooses to apprentice with a certain John the Baptist undergoing a water ritual blessing at his hands. That's the first half of the prologue is all talking about John the Baptist. <clears throat> now, we don't know much about the Baptist outside of our New Testament witnesses. But the Jewish historian Josephus, a contemporary of Mark, <clears throat> writes that Herod executed John, that is Herod Antipas, executed John for plainly political reasons. Namely, the Baptist preaching was stirring up a popular insurrection. So of all the mentors that Jesus of Nazareth might have chosen to initiate him through baptism in the wild waters of the Jordan River, we have to ask ourselves, why does he make his way to this politically notorious prophet? Indeed, I think it's rather significant that Mark's story of Jesus' ministry begins with this matter-of-fact statement in verse 14, that Jesus emerges into his public vocation after John is arrested by Herod. Remember, Herod Antipas is the Tetrarch of Galilee and Perea, beginning from 4 BCE to the year 39. So after Herod the Great dies, his kingdom is divided into three among three sons, and um, Herod Antipas is made the one of the rulers of this northern part of the divided kingdom. <clears throat> now, in a later flashback account of John's execution in Mark 6, 14 to 30, Mark explains the circumstances surrounding these events. Uh, in a kind of a political cartoon. That's the story of Salome's dance and the head of John the Baptist on a platter um, at a very elite dinner party. This political cartoon makes it clear that John's public criticisms of Herod's personal and political policies not only got him thrown into prison, but got him beheaded. So what attracts... Jesus to this radical figure of John. Perhaps it was John's clear self-identification with the radical tradition of the wilderness prophets. In fact, John's costume, we're not often told what people are wearing in Mark's gospel, so when we are, it's important to pay attention. John's costume Camel skins is obviously symbolic of the great prophet Elijah, who in 1 Kings 1 is described as 
um, <clears throat> a hairy man with a leather belt around his waist. Of course, this Elijah the prophet also challenged kings and queens of his day. You will perhaps also recall that Elijah's story lacked closure since at the end of his life he disappeared up into heaven at the river Jordan, 2 Kings chapter 2. So the memory of Elijah was a subversive memory indeed. He was sort of AWOL and might come back in Yahweh's judgment at any time. And so Jesus comes to someone wearing an Elijah costume at the River Jordan, um, preaching repentance in the wilderness. And there Jesus decides to do his apprenticeship. And after John the Baptist is silenced by Herod, Jesus takes up his cause and begins building a movement among local Palestinian Jews who were being disenfranchised by these imperial forces of globalization, and we'll talk about those in a minute. As Jesus takes up the baton of the fallen John, we are told that central to Jesus' proclamation is exactly what was central to John's proclamation, namely the call to repentance. And as you know, <clears throat> the Greek term metanoia <clears throat> does not really mean <clears throat> internal sorrow for one's sins, although it might include that, but rather really connotes a struggle to turn both personal and political histories around because they're headed in a disastrous direction. Now, I want to offer an <clears throat> interesting and focalizing analogy here. Jesus apprenticed himself to a wilderness prophet who called his people to turn around amidst a historical crisis. Mark wrote roughly 40 years after the deaths of John and Jesus, calling a new generation to take up this same proclamation that Jesus took up from the fallen John. Now, admittedly, this world of antiquity seems very remote to us modern North Americans. But the world of Memphis, Tennessee, in April 1968, that's not quite as remote. You see, we live almost exactly 50 years after Martin Luther King was killed in what we now know was a government conspiracy to silence his prophetic voice. This assassination occurred exactly one year after Dr. King's militant call to Americans to turn around from what he called the giant triplets of racism and poverty and militarism in his famous Riverside speech of April 4th, 1967. So in our work, we often pose this question to our American churches. What would it mean for we Christians to align ourselves publicly with this Dr. King, not the domesticated saint, but the radical critic of racism and poverty and militarism. Obviously, this is a controversial proposition, but it does help us to understand the meaning of Jesus' identification with the radical John the Baptist and, in turn, Mark's decision to write a story about a radical Jesus following a radical John, following the radical prophets, and commending this way to us. Now, Mark calls all of this the message of and about Jesus a gospel, in Greek, evangelion. Now, this choice of terms was both polemical and highly political. According to the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, it was the emperor who gives good news its significance and power, because the emperor 
was more than a common man. His ordinances are glad messages, good tidings, evangelion, and his commands are sacred writings. He proclaims evangelia through his appearance. So, for example, this is a picture of the famous uh, Priyani calendar inscription that uh, hails from Western Turkey in uh, the year nine before the Common Era. And it speaks of Caesar Augustus as, quote, a savior both for us and our descendants, that he might end war and arrange all things. And since the birthday, the birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning of the good news. The beginning of the good news. That's exactly how Mark starts out his gospel in his proscript, the beginning of the good news. Scholar Gerd Tyson adds that, quote, Josephus calls the news of Vespasian's proclamation as emperor good news. In other words, this is something that happened while Mark is writing his gospel. Every city kept a festival for the Evangelia and offered sacrifices on behalf of Emperor Vespasian. So it's pretty um, pretty notable that Mark, writing on the margins of empire, chooses to take this term of Roman imperial propaganda and name his story accordingly. But of course, Mark's Good news is challenging, not eulogizing the empire. It's um, a counter-propaganda. It implies that Jesus, uh, that Caesar's hegemony is being eclipsed by a powerful prophet who has been anointed by the rebel, rebel John the Baptist in Jordan's holy waters and who heralds the restoration of Yahweh's true and exclusive sovereignty. Which brings us to the next part of Jesus' opening proclamation. As you can see here from Mark 1.15, Jesus is not proposing a utopian dream that can only be realized in some other place like heaven or some other time like the afterlife. This proclamation leaves no room for otherworldly religion. The time, says Jesus, is now. The sovereignty of God is right here, imminent. This suggests that Jesus was reasserting the exclusive kingship of God in the face of an obviously corrupt Herodian dynasty that was busy selling out Palestine to the Romans. So Richard Horsley believes we should take this announcement literally, not metaphorically, and exclusively, such that the imperial rule of Caesar is on the way out. So it's easy to see how uh, controversial this message would have been when it's recontextualized in the real world that produced this story. Now, by way of a little bit of what we might call ideological background, Jesus' rhetoric of God's kingdom was grounded in an older radical tradition that goes back to the confederate roots of free Israel. This, the original Sinai covenant given to Moses envisioned a, <clears throat> a sort of a decentralized style of self-governance. Because Yahweh was sovereign over Israel, royalist politics were precluded. So, for example, after the kings of Canaanite city-states are vanquished in the revolutionary uprising of Joshua 12, <clears throat> the victorious military leader Gideon rejects the people's attempts to make him king. As you see here, I will not rule over you Yahweh will rule over you, Judges 8, 23 So in this system, these texts tell us, local judges or adjudicators were appointed to administer this 
tribal confederacy. Now, Hebrew Bible scholar Norman Gottwald, and one of my important mentors, believes that this intertribal egalitarian social organization represented a revolutionary alternative to the dominating rule of the Bronze Age Canaanite city-states who were aligned with Imperial Egypt. And if I may free associate an analogy, it's not unlike the Iroquois tribal confederacy struggling to um, survive the imperial colonization of the Americans to the south and the east and the British to the north and the west. But that's another story. Again, another text that indicates this old radical tradition narrates the decline of this confederation system because of internal corruption and external military threats. Disillusioned with their experiment in self-determination, the Israelites go to the great judge Samuel to demand that he appoint for us a king to govern us like the other nations. Uh, The story of the call of Samuel is our Old Testament reading um, this coming Sunday, the second Sunday in Epiphany. They have not rejected you, says God to Samuel in 1 Samuel 8, 5 and following. They have rejected me from being king over them. God then instructs Samuel to warn the people about the ways of a king and what ensues is a long and lamentable litany of oppression, including forced conscription, militarism, state expropriation of labor and resources, an economy geared to the elite, and taxation. So it is that the old anti-royalist tradition that Jesus' enunciation of God's rule, it is this tradition that Jesus seeks to renew. And yet, as he is saying this, in the year 19 of the Common Era, just as Jesus is likely entering adulthood, Herod Antipas decides to move his administrative capital from Sepphoris, the aforementioned city, to the Sea of Galilee. This was all part of a Roman economic colonization of the regional economy and particularly the fishing industry around the lake. Now, if Jesus was a construction worker, he may well have been drawn to the Sea of Galilee to help build that imperial city. Imagine if Jesus' early days, he's constructing not only Sepphoris, but the new imperial city of Tiberias. Suffice it to say that Jesus of Nazareth knew a thing or two about worker alienation. Our friend John Dominic Crossan summarizes this thesis. If you look at the decade of the 20s, even if you knew nothing about Jesus, you would say from the historical sources, okay, Romanization has just hit Lower Galilee full force, and it's focused on the lake. So if I find two prophets, say the baptism movement of John and the kingdom movement of Jesus, both appearing in the 20s, that's more than coincidence. The social situation of Romanization is being resisted in the name of God and in the name of ancient traditions of the peasantry. So it's kind of interesting that this historical context really brings these texts to life in, a, in, in quite a uh, different way. Now, when Jesus of Nazareth comes to the lake, always called in Mark the Sea of Galilee, He was walking right into a distressed economic landscape. You see, the fishing industry in the first century depended on 
boats constructed of wood, often in need of repair. So, for example, uh, recently an 8 foot by 26 foot boat dating to the time of Jesus was found well preserved in the mud of the lake at Kinneret. It was constructed originally of cedar, but had been repaired no less than with five other types of wood over the course of a century. So obviously this is a, a, a poor person's boat constantly being patched together. As a tecton, a woodworker, Jesus may also have gotten work repairing boats. In that sense, as an itinerant laborer, Jesus may have moved up the coast of the sea from harbor to harbor. So the Sea of Galilee is a freshwater, a large freshwater lake, about seven miles wide and 13 miles long. In antiquity, this shore was dotted with villages connected with the local fishing industry, as you see in the map here. This was the most prosperous segment of ancient Galilee's economy. Since 1970, archaeology has made it possible to put on the map some 16 ancient harbors that were unknown until recently. One archaeologist, uh, the Jewish uh, scholar Mendel Nun, writes that most of the fishing villages and their harbors pictured here were founded or rebuilt in the last centuries before the Christian era, right? So that's indicative of um, a Roman infrastructure. Many ruins from Roman times can still be seen around the lake, public buildings and temples, sophisticated hydraulic engineering facilities, and most importantly, a network of roads and bridges and harbors. The Romans developed maritime transport network. Um, they were known for superior construction of harbors. Here I want to focus on just three villages that figure prominently in our gospel narrative, namely Capernaum on the northwest shore, Magdala to the southwest, and further south the aforementioned Tiberius. In the year of the common era of 14, Caesar Augustus dies, and Tiberius eventually becomes emperor. In order to cultivate the new emperor's favor, as I mentioned, in the year 19, Herod Antipas begins building this second capital city, and he names it after the new emperor. Tiberius. The primary function of Tiberius was to regulate the fishing industry around the Sea of Galilee, putting it firmly under the control of Roman and Herodian elites who endeavored to control the industry for export markets. That's why we can legitimately call this structural adjustment. Now, a little bit of economic background. Fish that had formerly been caught in a sustainable fashion for local consumption <clears throat> were now increasingly <clears throat> um, possess, processed into salt preserve or fish sauce for export. That means that the traditional local subsistence economy was being structurally adjusted by imperial interests, made, made possible by all of these infrastructural improvements of roads and harbors and processing factories carried out by the Herodians. Scholar K.C. Hansen has drawn a compelling portrait of the political economy of the fishing industry around the Sea of Galilee during this period. All fishing became state-regulated for the benefit of the urban elite, either Romans who had settled in Palestine following military conquest or Jews connected with the Herodian family now centered in Tiberias. These elites profited from the fishing industry in two ways. First of all, they controlled the sale of fishing leases without which locals could no longer fish. And secondly, they taxed the fish product, its processing, and levied tolls 
on product transport. Moving up the coast from Tiberias, Jesus may have also sought work in the ship repair yards at Migdal or Magdala, a major harbor on the west shore of Galilee. Its former name was Terakea, which means processed fishville. This is likely where Mary Magdalene hailed from, and Mary may well have been a refugee from the fish factories. In 2009, the remains of a synagogue from the Second Temple period, which we're talking about in the Gospels, was exposed in archaeological excavations at Migdal. In the middle of the site is a stone that is engraved with a seven-branched menorah. According to the excavation director, this is the first time that a menorah decoration has been discovered from the Second Temple period. This synagogue joins just six other synagogues in the world that are known to date to the Second Temple period. And this indicates how important processed Fishville was during the Gospel period. What we know for sure is that Jesus showed up in Capernaum, the third village we're talking about, a major harbor and an important center of the fishing trade. It is here, Mark tells us, that Jesus meets the fishermen's sons of Zebedee and Yohanan. Now, fishing rights were normally awarded not to individuals, but to local kinship-based cooperatives known as known as koinonoi, such as the brothers Simon and Andrew or the Zebedee family we meet in Mark 1, 16 to 20. So this is a sort of an accurate portrait. Now, peasant fishermen used three different methods. One was called a seine net method, attached to shore on one end while the other is pulled out into the lake in a circular path. All that is caught between the net and the shore is pulled in, and then a sorting process takes place that would separate the good from the bad fish, the kosher from the non-kosher. In fact, this is an image that appears in Matthew 13 as a metaphor of the last judgment. The kingdom of heaven is like a net let down into the lake that caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it to shore and sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. A second kind of fishing, oftentimes for someone working alone, was cast net fishing, in which the fishermen would use um, as walking among the reeds or shallow, shallow water next to the shore. They would see a school of fish, cast the net over them, and pull it up. This is likely what Peter and Andrew were doing when Jesus encountered them. This is the kind of fishing that was done, obviously, during the day. In contrast, the trammel net fishing system was used mainly at night. A series of complex nets weighted at the bottom with buoys on top, typically put out in a circle. James and John may have been repairing such nets, and indeed in the Gospel of <clears throat> Luke, we're told the story of the night fishing expedition, which comes up empty. Now, this may be more than you wanted to know about first century peasant fishing. But after all, it is the lead scenario of Mark's gospel. And part of bringing this story down to earth is for us to become more literate in the real world that this text is alluding to. Jesus' encounter with such fishermen at their work represents a scenario that is usually romanticized or trivialized in our churches, right? Oh, how quaint, fishermen. But when recontextualized in the real world of first century Romanized Palestine, this little vignette gives us a glimpse into the hard world of peasant fishing the equivalent of a modern sweatshop or diamond mine or coca plantation. It is into this world that Jesus, himself a marginalized worker, steps to begin building a movement. Now, 
This scenario is so important to Mark that he narrates it not once, but twice, repetition being the key to pedagogy. There is, needless to say, a story here that he does not want us to miss. So let's not miss it. You see, the economic changes taking place during the 20s function to marginalize and impoverish formerly self-sufficient native fishing families. Leases, taxes, tolls were exorbitant, while the fish upon which local people depended as a dietary staple was being extracted for export. Moreover, the elites looked down on local fishermen, even as they depended upon their labor. The most shameful of all uh, occupations, wrote the Roman poet Cicero, are fish sellers and fishermen. The fisher, attests an ancient Egyptian papyrus, is more miserable than any other profession. With such rigid state control of their livelihood and the oppressive economics of export, it's hardly surprising that in Mark's story, fishermen are the first converts to Jesus' message about an alternative social vision. Having fallen to the bottom of the new economic hierarchy, it stands to reason that these peasant fishermen would have been particularly responsive to Jesus' vision of an alternative. If Tiberius was ground zero in Herod's project of Romanizing the regional economy, then Capernaum up the coast, a village profoundly impacted by such policies, would have indeed been a logical place to commence building a movement of resistance and renewal. Restless peasant fishermen had little to lose and everything to gain by overturning the status quo. To offer another analogy then, we can reasonably see that Jesus' choice to begin his organizing among peasant fishermen is analogous, say, to Gandhi's attempts to mobilize the Dalit classes in India in campaigns such as his famous salt march in 1930. What do you think, Rosemary? Or for that matter, Martin Luther King Jr.'s fateful decision to stand with the sanitation workers, strike in Memphis in 1968, an act of solidarity with the low-wage sector that led to King's assassination. An assassination that was 50 years ago this coming April 4th. Gandhi and King understood what Jesus also knew, namely that great movements for social change must begin at the bottom, at the margins. Change never trickles down from above. No wonder, then, that Mark records the response of these exploited fishermen to Jesus as immediate. They perceived him as bringing good news to poor people. They left their nets and followed him. Uh, the refrain in Mark 18 and 20. To be sure, Jesus was inviting an uncompromising break with business as usual. But the key verb here, to leave, afiemi, is used elsewhere in Mark to connote release from debt, liberation from demons, forgiveness of sin, release from bondage, It is, in other words, a sort of a jubilee verb. This is made explicit, for example, later in Mark's story, in the famous story of the call of the rich man in Mark 10, 28 and following. There, to leave, same verb, to leave home, family, and work specifically alludes to the discipleship community's practice of social and uh, economic redistribution, and mutual aid. In the Jesus story, discipleship means following away with very specific social, political, and economic dimensions. 
but we can rediscover this only once that story is properly relocated in the real terrain of first century Palestine. And on Thursday, we'll be looking more closely at that set of discipleship call stories in Mark chapter 10. This brings us in conclusion this morning to the most famous lines in gospel literature, beloved to evangelicals, who have traditionally interpreted it to mean that Jesus was calling these fishermen to go save souls. And so he was. But Christians who are functionally illiterate in the Hebrew Bible, and unfortunately that's most of us, miss the real point here. So let us hear the echoes in this line, this recruiting phrase, of no less than four prophetic oracles that employ exactly this image. Jeremiah envisions Yahweh sending for many fishermen in order to catch the wayward people of Israel, specifically those who have polluted the land with idols. Jeremiah 16, 16. The prophet Amos, on the other hand, targets the elite classes of Israel, whom he calls cows of Bashan, warning that Yahweh, Yahweh will haul them away like sardines to judgment. Amos 4, 1 and 2. They shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. A third clearly anti-imperial oracle found in Ezekiel's rant against Egypt's Pharaoh. As in the case of the Sea of Galilee, Ezekiel's oracle denounces the empire's delusion that it owns all the water resources. And God vows to yank the dragon of Egypt right out of the river, hook, line, and sinker, along with the fish that it claims exclusive rights to. Ezekiel 29, verse 3. And finally, the prophet Habakkuk, who laments the way the Babylonian emperor overfishes, feeding on conquered peoples, cannibalizing the nations in the interests of empire. The Babylonian tyrant pulls the peoples up with a fish hook, hauls them out with a throw net, catches them in his net. He has plenty of food. When will he continue will he always continue to fill and empty his throw net? Will he always destroy nations and spare none? <clears throat> All of these prophetic oracles use the image of fishing to make a point about God's judgment on whoever oppresses the poor and marginalized. Thus, Jesus, who knew not only the prophetic literature, but sought also to embody that those old stories anew in his context. For Jesus, the idiom fishers of people was the way to summon working folk to join him in overturning the structures of power and privilege in the world in order to restore God's justice to the poor. Or in modern parlance, he invited these fishermen to come help him catch some big fish. Let me conclude with a sort of epilogue which is Mark's second discipleship call story found in chapter 2, verses 14 and following. Interestingly, this time it is not fishermen who are being called, but rather the sellers of fishing leases, namely the tax collectors. We're told that as he was walking along, he sees Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting in a tax booth. Levi's tax office is also in Capernaum. In addition to collecting taxes, Levi sold fishing rights and may have even supplied capital for fishermen to build nets or boats. Naturally, he would charge exorbitant interest for this service. It's not for nothing that the subject of debt 
pops up all through the Gospels. And yet this man, deeply complicit in imperial oppression, is also the subject of Jesus' organizing. Even more surprising, in the very next episode, Mark portrays a party at Levi's place, Mark 2.15. Attending this party are both debtors and debt collectors. Now, there was only one way in which these class enemies, poor fishermen who were indebted to elite sellers of fishing leases, only one way that these two classes would have shared table fellowship. And that is if Levi's discipleship would have entailed a significant redistribution of wealth and social power. Now, so you don't think I'm just imagining this. I remind you that we get a very specific account of this kind of concrete repentance in Luke's story of Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector, in Luke 19. There, Jesus similarly invites himself over for dinner to Zacchaeus' house, who responds by vowing to redistribute half his wealth and make fourfold restitution to all of those who had been defrauded by his business, which is precisely what Torah demands. These kinds of stories are disturbing and inconvenient to our modern churches because we have reduced conversion to a private matter of the heart. But Mark's gospel is talking about an invitation to economic justice, a challenge given to both poor and rich alike. I imagine that something like what we see in Zacchaeus' party was embodied in Levi's jubilary feast. After all, our own history in this country, in the U.S., teaches us that we should never underestimate the power of a strategic meal. This is a picture in 1960 of four black college students who walked into a Woolworth store in Greensboro, North Carolina, sat down at a whites-only lunch counter, and waited to be served. Their protests soon gained national attention, and sit-in demonstrations spread throughout the country. In a period of a year, more than 75,000 students, both black and white, participated in the sit-in movement in 1960, breathing new life into a stalled civil rights movement, which went on to bring the most significant social change in the history of the United States. That's what a jubilary meal can do. So to summarize, <clears throat> Mark's portrait of Jesus' first, first discipleship call story in chapter 1, verses 16 to 20, describes a world in political, social, economic, and religious crisis. The tensions of local disenfranchisement by imperial forces of globalization was unmasked by prophets like Jesus and his mentor, John the Baptist, who called their people to struggle to turn their history around. When John the Baptist was murdered by Herod, Jesus took up his cause and his message and began building a movement among workers who were hardest pressed at that particular moment in history, peasant fishermen. But he also challenged those who oppressed the fishermen, tax collectors, to become, become part of a beloved community by enacting the old principles of fundamental economic and social justice. Now, I want to uh, end on a personal note. Um, and uh, Lynn, you will resonate with this, I'm sure. Um, my wife Elaine and I were at the Sea of Galilee, Sea of Galilee seven years ago, and Bill and Sandra, as I mentioned, are going to visit there, I believe, uh, either later this month or next month, uh, Bill. Mm -hmm. for, for us, it was fulfilling a lifelong dream to stand and sit at the shore of the Sea of Galilee, where the Christian movement began two millennia ago. 
So here's me sitting out in front of the site where tradition and archaeology has it that the peasant fisherman Peter lived and worked. This is literally Peter's front yard. It was a reminder that our Gospels are not fairy tales, but the testimony of real people, real places, and real movements encoded in these stories passed down to us to try to make sense of our own day. And just a couple of kilometers southwest on the lake there, we walked there from here, was the Church of the Loaves and Fishes, where just beneath the altar is the rock which tradition says was the table for Jesus' feeding of the multitudes a story which we'll look at on Wednesday. In front of that rock is this famous 4th century Byzantine mosaic of loaves and fishes. And I might add, uh, Lynn, that uh, as you know, this church was vandalized by um, Jewish extremists just a couple of years ago. I think it's hugely significant that fish and bread, representing the contested economic landscape of the first century. Fish and bread were the earliest symbols of the Christian movement. This should serve to remind us that these biblical stories are all about the real world and all about the divine vision for economic and social justice, a movement into which God and Mark's gospel still calls us today. You have been listening to the Bartcast, produced by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. To find our resources or to donate to support the Bartcast, please go to chedmyers.org. Thank you for listening.